Let us open our Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to preach a sermon to you today, this morning, from one of my favorite verses. It has so much in it, and it's so simple and easy to understand, but I want you to appreciate every single word in it this morning. I want to read to you one verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and it's the first verse. Having, therefore, these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Father, Lord of heaven, and the blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I come to Thee and confess and acknowledge that unless You build the house of God, which is His church, and unless You bless Your servant, the preaching and the hearing this day shall be in vain. Therefore, O Lord, I call upon Thee to send Thy Holy Spirit and to anoint tongue and ear that we might speak and hear. And, O Lord, then I pray that You would take our hearts and crush them beneath Your tender grace and mighty power, that we would humble ourselves before Thee examine ourselves, repent of our foolishness, repudiate our sins, and reform and conform our lives unto Jesus Christ our Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will affect every soul this day, every one that is yours that you have bought with the precious blood of your Son. Arrest that soul and turn it again unto thee, and cause by the preaching of your pitiful servant to be profitable to their salvation, that they might be perfected at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I trust thee. I have no trust anywhere else. Help me now, and help these thy people by grace, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I believe we can do it. I believe we ought to do it. I believe the promises that are hinted at and implied in this verse, are worthy of it. And I believe the fear of the Lord that ought to drive us to it is dreadful enough. So we ought to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord and to cleanse our lives. Jesus Christ has made me your servant to perfect you now and to prepare you for his coming. In a time like this, 
when our nation has suffered terrorist attacks by profane antichrists and a Bible consideration of Islam is upon us and when our souls are given to passion because our nation's safety is at stake and when our lips are prone to say things about other nations and peoples and religions, we had better make sure, as I taught you last Sunday, that our lives are holy. If we're going to call on this nation to repent, and if we're going to listen to our president speak and realize that his speech fell far short of what it should have been, and if we're going to consider to criticize many of the institutions in our country, let us make sure that this institution, the Church of Jesus Christ in Greenville, and our homes, and our families, and our lives are holy. Right. Or we have no right to say anything. Amen. And we have no right for passion of any sort. Let us perfect holiness in the fear of God. Then... When our hearts are righteous and pure before him, and there is not a taint, stain, blot, or blemish of evil, we can turn our attention on the motes in others' eyes. And we can direct the prayers and the strength, our strength of Israel to our enemies. But let us make sure that we are pure first. Amen. Brethren, how do you read the word of God? How do you read it? Do you read it as if every word of God is pure? Amen. Do you read it as fervently as the Muslims read their novel, the Koran? Do you read the Word of God as a message from the great and dreadful God that is more sure than His very voice from heaven? Amen. Do you read the Word of God with eager expectation for whatever God might command us? Do you read the Word of God with great love for what we might be shown by which we could serve Jesus Christ more perfectly? Well, let's go look at the Word of God then. Let's look at this text of 2 Corinthians 7.1 and analyze it in its words. 2 Corinthians 7.1, I want to show you how simple the Bible can be, but how beautiful it is when we look at its words. 2 Corinthians 7.1, having. Brethren, this is not something we're waiting for. This is not something held out to us like heaven as a future expectation. It is something we're presently in possession of having having this is something we have it's already been given we already possess it what will we do with it and what is what is it that we do have having therefore now that therefore is a word that i've told you before whenever you see a therefore you ought to ask the question what is the therefore there for because therefore is a word in English that draws a conclusion from what has been said already. Right. And this therefore is directing us back to the last few verses of chapter 6, which we'll look at in a few moments. But Paul's therefore is telling us that we have something that he has described and listed just previously. And we have it. Having therefore these very specific listed and enumerated Promises. Having therefore these promises. What is a promise? It is a commitment to do something. A promise is a commitment to do something. But these promises are God's commitment Amen. to do something. 
If I promise you something, I will try to keep my promise, and you may hope in my ability or my memory to keep the promise, but I may not keep it. I remember the first, this isn't a very embarrassing thing, but I'll tell it to you just to make sure that you're not drifting off already. The first time I ever asked my wife on a date, it was for a church activity when she was 14 years old and I was 17. And I made a promise that I would take her in my GTO to this church activity. But Johnny forgot about his promise. And so that particular church activity that we had, Johnny took another girl in his GTO. And later, I was told about this because I had completely forgotten it. Now that's my promise. It's not worth very much. She ended up marrying me after that. Isn't that special? First time I ever asked her to go anyplace, I forgot all about it. She would, she would say to her mother, should I remind him? Because I asked her quite a bit in advance, and her mother said, no, let's wait and see if, if he'll remember. That'll show his level of interest. That's my promise. God promised these promises, brethren. God promised. God made commitments. God cannot lie so that the promise was true and God cannot repent. He will not undo it. Right. <laughs> Having therefore these promises, we're going to look at the promises in a moment. Let's get through the first verse of chapter 7, which truly belongs to chapter 6 in thought, though I'll leave it right where it is. I'm not planning on a new edition of the King James Bible. I love the one we have. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved. Amen. Where was the last time you heard the words, dearly beloved? I'll bet it was at a wedding ceremony. A Roman Catholic ceremony of holy matrimony. Where they use the words, dearly beloved, as a form. But these, are not, this, these words are not a form. Dearly is an adjective describing how much we're loved. Right. Dearly beloved. Not only did the Apostle Paul love the saints at Corinth, God loves us Amen. dearly. I have made my prayer. If you have prepared your hearts and souls, then it is by the Spirit of God that you can hear these words and hear them with joy and pleasure. Dearly beloved, you are loved dearly by the great God. And that is a thought too incredible for human words. Only by the Spirit of God can we fully appreciate such a blessing. Dearly beloved, having therefore these promises, having in our possession commitments by God that I have listed for you, O oh, you most loved of God, let. There is something that we must do. Let. Let is our choice. Let is our response to God's promises. Let us. You know, it is so easy. I'm moving to the word us, that pronoun us. It is so easy for us to focus our attention on others. Let others cleanse themselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. It doesn't say let others. It says let us. Don't think about anyone else but our own souls. How can Jonathan Crosby more perfectly reflect Jesus Christ by his words, his conduct, and his thoughts. How can you do that? Amen. How can you cleanse away every bit of dirt, every spot, every stain?
that is in your moral character and in your thoughts and in your words to be perfectly holy before God. That is my purpose this morning, to exhort you to it. Because, brethren, there are promises held out that if we'll do it, we can receive enormous riches from heaven now. And we ought to do it because of the fear of the Lord also. But I love the order that he has. First, it's the promises. And then as a foundation underneath those promises, the fear of God. Let us, no one else, not your neighbor, not someone else in the assembly that you know something about, not your spouse, not your children, not your neighbor, not not others who claim the name of Christ but are not living up to it. Let us cleanse. Cleanse is to wash thoroughly so that there's no imperfection, dirt, spots, stains left. To cleanse something is to thoroughly wash it. Let us thoroughly wash ourselves. And I, I love this emphasis, not others. Remember, my whole point is my fear. My fear is your pastor for my own soul and for yours, lest in this time of unrest in our nation that we get verbal about criticizing others, our government, institutions here, institutions abroad, religions, people, activities, if we're not living holy lives. Let us cleanse ourselves. Not let us cleanse our government. Let us cleanse our nation. Let us cleanse our neighbors. Let us cleanse those at work. Let us cleanse other church members. Let us cleanse ourselves from. It means we're getting rid of from is a preposition, meaning we're getting rid of some things. This is not a verse about adding. This The Lord's going to do all the adding, brethren. This is a verse about getting rid of some things. So what are you prepared to wash off you? What are you prepared to cut out? Let us cleanse ourselves from. We need to get rid of things in our lives that we can be without spot and without blemish and without dirt or stain before God who has eyes that do not miss a single thing. You know, you may be able to look in the mirror, but you you cannot see all of yourself. You cannot see those spots that are on your back that someone else has to pull off your garment. But the Lord sees them all. All things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Let us cleanse ourselves from all. Oh, brethren, this horrible word all, if it would only say most, if it would only say some, can't we show our zeal for God by cleansing ourselves from some things? Can't we be great Christians by doing some things for God? Can't we show that we're taking up his cross by denying ourselves some things? This verse is pregnant. If you remember what Gloria looked like, you know what the word means when it's used in the context of Scripture. Big and full. We have another lady here with that condition. This, This verse is pregnant in the sense and the meaning of its words. Every word has meaning all. Let us cleanse ourselves from all. Remember, we're getting rid of things. We must get rid of everything, every single thing 
that is a spot or a stain on our character, on our thoughts, on our consciences, on our garments, on our reputation before God and men. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. Now this dirt is not the dirt of the body. As Bible corruptors make it in 1 Peter 3.21, this is moral stains on our character. This is sin in our lives. This is the flesh being allowed to reign. These are thoughts of ungodliness. These are breaking the commandments of God. That's the filthiness here. We are to cleanse ourselves, wash ourselves thoroughly from every single spot of moral filth, of sin, of spiritual pollution, of the flesh. Of the flesh. Your flesh is your body and your bodily desires and your bodily appetites. You want to eat. You want to drink. You want sex and other things that your bodies want. Your body wants to sleep. Your body wants to sit in a chair when you get home from work instead of doing what you ought to do. All the things that your body wants to do that the Lord tells you it ought not to do is the filth of the flesh. Everything your body should be doing that you're not doing, that is filth of the flesh because you're not doing what God has commanded you to do with your bodies. The filth of the flesh. We're to wash every spot and stain of a filthy body and filthy appetites of our body away. We are to keep our bodies under, disciplined and governed, so that our bodies and their appetites are not doing anything Their desires are not doing anything that would displease our God. And, oh, that and. That and there is for the Pharisee that is strong in all of our souls. The the and is there to tell us that if we reform our outward performance, it is not enough. That is what the and is there for. The and is there that if you so conform your life to Jesus Christ that we cannot see any problems outwardly, you've only done part of the job. And if we're all honest before the Lord and with each other, we've only done a fraction of the job because what follows the and is harder, isn't it? The flesh and spirit, which is your inner man your thought processes, your emotions, your fantasies, your desires. We are to wash ourselves thoroughly from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. We must look inside and see those thoughts, those ambitions, those intents, those hopes, that bitterness, that hatred, whatever is inside that no one else can see except God and yourself, and get rid of every single spot of it so that we can please God. Let us cleanse ourselves in light of the promises that we're going to look at and in light of the fear of God, which we ought to dread, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. If we do that the way that I've just described, we will perfect That is, we will have complete, mature, developed, appropriate, full holiness. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You say, but 
You're not preaching sinless perfection, are you, pastor? No, I'm not. But what I am preaching is when you sin, you confess it immediately to God and it's washed away and you continue right on in perfect holiness. Because that's the way the Bible uses the word. Does the Bible tell us that Job was a perfect man? Yes, it does. Does the Bible tell us that John and Elizabeth, John, Zacharias and Elizabeth were perfect? Yes, it does. And that's what we want to aim for and nothing less in our cleansing. That we are perfectly clean and that we know we're perfectly clean. Because when we're all done, we've gone to the Lord in self-examination and said, Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. That's when we're all done. Then we ask the Lord to turn the spotlight of His Spirit. The candle of the Lord comes into our life and shows us whatever spots are left, and we cleanse those out. Perfecting holiness. 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 What a word. Absolute purity from any imperfection or evil. Absolute purity. Holiness is the beauty of God. Amen. He is powerful. Praise his holy name. Right. He is merciful. Bless his holy name. Amen. But he is holy. Right. He is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity approvingly. He can never look on sin with any favor or approval because he hates it. He repudiates it. It's totally contrary to his nature in every aspect. He is absolutely free from sin. There is nothing undefiled that will enter into his presence. It'll all be sanctified and made pure by the power of the Holy Ghost and the shed blood of Jesus Christ to ever dwell in his presence. The angels that are there have been are called the elect angels because they have been held back by almighty power from ever sinning against God. Holiness, the beauty of God, his absolute purity from sin and imperfection. And that's what we can have by cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. He gives us the grace for that. He's given us a new man. Now listen to me. He's given us a new man that is created in righteousness and what kind of holiness? True holiness. Ephesians 4.24, perfecting holiness in the fear we should have a holy and rightful dread of God. It was preached to you a few weeks ago by Brother Jim about the fear of the Lord. This is the foundation. Let us hear the whole, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That's the foundation. But brethren, He is not a God like that. He just didn't leave the foundation. Do you know what he's given us? Do you know what the verse starts off with? These promises. Having therefore these promises. We love, I do, I think some of you do, the fact that children are encouraged to their duties. Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 3, it tells children to obey their parents. It tells children to honor their parents. And then it says, children, you have the first commandment that was ever given with a promise attached to it. You want a long life? 
You want a good life? Then obey and honor your parents. And don't we look at that and say, the Lord is so good. He could have just said, the world needs authority. And the first authority relationship that you experience in life is the parental authority. Therefore, you must obey and honor your parents in order for the safe working of society and civilization. And he said all of that. But do you know what he says? It's the first commandment with promise. Honor your father and your mother that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long in the land which I give thee. But brethren, we have promises. And they're in this 2 Corinthians 7.1 by the words, these promises. Let's go back and look at the context of our text. Let's look at the context. Come back up to verse 14. 2 Corinthians 6.14 begins a new thought. And that new thought ends at 2 Corinthians 7.1. And here in these verses we have our context. There are three parts to our context. First of all is the commandment. These are the first words. It is what we would call 2 Corinthians 6, 14a. Whenever you see me in an outline or anywhere else referring to a verse and then after that a letter designation of A, B, C, or D, we are looking at the individual clauses of that verse. The sections or parts of that verse. And I want you to first to see 2 Corinthians 6, 14a, which is the first part of the context, it's the commandment. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is the first part of the context. It's a commandment. Be ye not. It's what we're to do. This is what we call in English an imperative verb construction. It's telling us to do something. It's not telling us a fact. It's not asking a question. It's not giving us any hypothesis. It's telling us what we ought to do. This is an active verb. This is what we are to be doing. This is a commandment. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Unequal is describing the fact that it's impossible for a Christian to have a very meaningful relationship with a non-Christian. For one that holds the truth, it's impossible to have a meaningful relationship with someone who doesn't hold the truth. It's impossible. Because it's unequal. It's out of balance. It doesn't work. It's not an efficient relationship because it's out of balance. You know what happens to your dryer at home when a, a few heavy towels get on one side of that dryer that previously was spinning so smoothly and hardly making a noise? And then some heavy towels get on one side, and pretty soon it's trying to walk out and go for around the block. Do you all know what I'm talking about? You look at me like you're, you don't know. Do we all have washers and dryers in this assembly? Or a washer gets that way. And you think the clatter that it sets up, you think that it's just going to leave the room and take a stroll. Because it's out of balance. And there is no relationship outside the saints of God of any meaningful value for believers. Because it will tear you down and destroy you and you will lose the promises that are coming up in the context. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Yoked 
describes the various relationships and connections that we get into in life with other people. Now, we've got to work with them. We've got to buy gas from them. We've got to go to the store with them. We've got to function like neighbors with them. We might even have to join the military and salute and shoot beside them and defend their lives in combat. There's lots of relationships we have to enter into. But this is a yoke. This is a yoke in which, which was a block of wood that went over the heads of two oxen. Just think about that one singular block of wood that went over the head of two oxen. If one ox goes forward, what must the other do? Go forward. If one stops, what must the other do? Stop. If one goes to the left, the other has to turn to the left. A yoke is a tight relationship that affects your conduct. Do you, you see that? Every word of God is pure. Amen. It doesn't prohibit us from all relationships with unbelievers. Because we have 1 Corinthians 10 that says, if an unbeliever bids you to a feast and you're disposed to go, go. But any relationship that you get into that is starting to put constraints on your life so that when they go left, you're being pushed to go left, or when they go right, you're being pushed to go right, that is a relationship you've got to end and get out of. Right. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. An, un an unbeliever can be someone that doesn't own our God and Savior Jesus Christ, and an unbeliever can be a saint in the church at Corinth that denies the resurrection. So don't just think that we're talking here about pagans that have never spoken the word Jesus Christ. We're talking about those that do not hold the faith of God's word and the wholesome words of sound doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to avoid them, to depart from them, and turn away from them. Right. Our friendships should be chosen very carefully. The friends you have, when they do something that's wrong, do you feel yourself being tugged in that direction? If you feel yourself being tugged to think like your friends and to talk like your friends, then those are friends you want to get rid of. Right. Those are friends you must get rid of. Amen. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is the Word of God. Right. It is not a suggestion for better living. This is a commandment of God to be not, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Then, it gives the reasons and the nature of proper separation from the world that's around us. He goes on to list five rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is a question that the answer is well known. But sometimes putting it in the form of a question makes it more powerful by making you answer the question. It's just a form of reasoning, and it's very powerful, and the Bible is full of them. Five rhetorical questions in a row is the next part of our context. Four, here's why God commands you not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Four, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? I want us to look at the reasons. And then we want to look at the nature. Why shouldn't we be yoked together with unbelievers? Because we're out of balance with them. Let's first of all look at the things that God is lists that we're to be opposed to. Five rhetorical questions. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? 
And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? The reason of the out-of-balance situation are five. Five things that are wrong that we want to avoid. Unrighteousness, darkness, Belial, infidelity, and idolatry. Belial is a personification of evil in the Bible. There are some men referred to as sons of Belial, which is just sons of perverse and gross wickedness. There are some very unsavory characters out there that are different than other men. There are sinners, and there are sons of Belial. And that's by God's choice, because if it wasn't by His grace of restraint, what would we all be? Sons of Belial. But there are some that God lets become sons of Belial. And they're mentioned from time to time in the Bible. Doeg the Edomite, who slew all the high who slew the high priest and all of his priests, just because Ahimelech the high priest had helped David with the sword and the showbread, was a son of Belial. That kind of wickedness. Those five things were to avoid unrighteousness, darkness, Belial, infidelity, and idolatry. We are to cut ourselves off from those things and not to enter into a relationship with them or a connection with them because it's so out of balance with Christianity. It's so out of balance. Those five things are opposites of Christianity. Unrighteousness. Now see, that's that gets pretty close to home. Believing that the resurrection was past and overthrowing the faith of some in 1 Corinthians 15 was an act of unrighteousness. That's why the apostle said, awake to righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 15, even doctrinal error. We are to avoid those influences. And to cut off those relationships, right now there's a great push in our nation for unity. You've all seen the words, united we stand. No united, we're going to fall. All they can think about is the carnal aspects. But God does not want his people to have unity with those who believe differently. The Bible is filled with it from one end to the other. And I'm not even going to turn you there because we're going to stay right here. It says, be ye not unequally yoked together. There is no fellowship between righteousness and unrighteousness or infidelity. And most of our nation are infidels today. That is why there is so much error in these great movements like the promise keepers. The promise keepers get 15 or 20,000 men together, ranging from Jehovah's Witnesses to Baptists, from Mormons to Lutherans. And they'll have the Lord's Supper together. And they'll sing Amazing Grace together. And they'll think because they can hear 15,000 men singing at once that they're doing something noble and good and godly. But it's not noble, and it's not good, and it's not godly. Amen. Because they're compromising and breaking down all the differences in doctrine and righteousness and unrighteousness and idolatry. There'll be Catholics there and all sorts of doctrines. The Bible does not allow us to do that. It teaches us to be separate and to not be yoked to get together with them, those unbelievers or those in unrighteousness in any relationship or connection that would cause us to be turned with them, that would influence us away from the truth 
of God. It gives us the nature of relationships. Look at it says fellowship in the first question. It says communion. That is common union in the second question. It says concord, which is to be connected in some complementary way. It says no part with an infidel. And it says, what kind of agreement can you have? You know, the Bible says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? How can two walk together? When you're in a yoke, you must walk together. Any, You know, we don't know any of these things anymore. Here's how we can figure it out, though. If your cylinders in your engine decided to operate in a different cadence, what would happen to your engine? You know, we're not used to walking behind a yoke of oxen and seeing them work in tandem, but they have to move at the same time or the plow doesn't go very straight. It twists in the ground and it curves all over the fields. You wouldn't get a straight row. And there is no agreement when, when people differ in doctrine. How can they walk together? There's going to come a point where that doctrine is exposed And if you have built a relationship, you are subject to the temptation of continuing it past that point. You will will break that point of doctrine down. You will compromise it. You will say, it's not that important. And you'll step past it. Because you're in a yoke with someone that never believed it in the first place. That's why we must believe the same things. Because if two walk together and they're going to do it, they must be in agreement. Right. They must be in agreement. These kind of relationships of fellowship and of communion and of agreement have to be managed very carefully in our lives. This is the context of our verse. Then it explains the promises. It begins in the middle of verse 16. We've already covered 16a with the words, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? And then here is 16b. For ye are the temple of the living God. They may have their idol gods. They may have their Allah, which is an idol god. It's the moon god of the Arabians, known long before Muhammad, who Muhammad's father was named after. All you have to do is look at their flags and look at their symbols and see the crescent moon to understand that and look at their swords, which are not swords, but scimitars, which are nothing but the curved crescent moon and see that they're moon worshipers and they always have been the moon is worshipped in Mecca and was worshipped as the supreme deity of 360 pagan idols that were kept in the Kaaba the little shrine that is in Mecca and it is still there and these superstitious people worship the moon god and they make a pilgrimage to Mecca so that they can wander around in a prescribed direction around that little shrine before they approach it, kneel down and kiss the black stone, which is nothing but a meteorite for the superstitious Arabs. That is not a religion of the true and living God. The text says, for ye are the temple of the living God. We are, we are the temple as a church We are a group of saints that have come together and God dwells with us, so we are His temple. God is worshipped right here. We are the temple of the living God. Brethren, that is a blessing. It's an enormous blessing. We are the temple of the living God. God 
The living God does not dwell in a temple made with hands. So they build a shrine made with hands. 60 by 60 by 60. God does not dwell in a temple made with hands. God dwells among his saints. And we are the temple of the living God. So what? how in the world could we possibly have fellowship, communion, concord, or agreement with anyone that worships any differently than following the true and the living God? And the true and the living God is described and defined and limited by the Word of God. Right. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Amen. Wherefore, come out from among them. Here's the commandment again. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Saith the Lord Almighty, because the gods of the heathen have no might at all. And he is the, the Lord with all might. Therefore, he is the Lord Almighty. So how can we ever compromise the worship and religion of the Lord Almighty with those who worship gods that are weak and foolish and vain and idols? May God bless the reading of his word to you. Now let's look at the promises and let me show you that there are seven of them. Let us go back to the middle of verse 16. God hath said, I will dwell in them. I will dwell in them. That's from Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 12. That is a promise from God. I will dwell in them. God, the Lord, the Almighty, the living God, will dwell in them. He will come and live. He will make his home. He will have his habitation among the saints of God. No matter how poor, no matter how few, No matter how weak, no matter how foolish, God will dwell among his people. The living God, the Lord Almighty, will live his address, his residence, where he will abide, where he will stay, is with his people. I will walk in them, is the second promise, and walk in them. He will accompany us. In our daily activities, we not only have a place where we stay, and he has a place that he stays with us, we also move about and go here and go there. We go out and we come in, as the Bible says, and he will go with us. He will walk with us. Where we go, he will go with us. If we must move professionally, he goes with us. If we must move geographically, he goes with us. If we must move maritally, he goes with us. If we must downsize financially, he goes with us. The living God, the Lord Almighty. Amen. Oh, I wish you had 80 hours, 100 hours of reading the Koran and the Hadith of Islam so that you could get a little excited about the Lord Almighty and about the living God dwelling with his people. Walking with his people. I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God. Third promise out of seven. 
I will be their God. The Lord will perform all the aspects of a God, the God, toward us. But he defines what a God is. And do you know what a God is? He is merciful and long-suffering, gracious and full of loving kindness. He is our shield. He is our defender. He is our provider. He is everything. I will be their God. All that you could ever imagine that a God could be, should be, or you would want him to be, he is that and so much more because you aren't smart enough to think of what a God ought to be. But he's already done it for you. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. Amen. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above what you can ask or think. Right. According to the power that worketh in us, because he is dwelling in them. And I will walk in them, and I will be their God. He is not everyone's God. I will be their God. In Psalm 33 that we read this morning, it said, Those that God had chosen are his inheritance. I will be their God. Then it says, They shall be my people. If we're the people of God, then that means we're the objects of his affection, the ones he cares about, the ones he's going to protect, the ones he'll provide for, the ones he'll give peace to, the ones he will pour out all of his loving kindness upon them. They shall be my people. God wants some people. He's chosen to have some people that he can love and take care of. They will be my people. Then we have the the commandment stated again in verse 17. To come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. We are not to even touch or be stained or dirtied in any way with the idolatry and the unrighteousness and the unbelief and the heresy of this world. We're to avoid it and cleanse ourselves from it. And notice what it says if we'll do those things. I will receive you. If you went to Washington and knocked at the gate of the White House, would you be received? You'd get to look at a guard. He'd tell you to take a hike if you could even get to the gate these days, but you wouldn't be received. Well, what if you got in your car and said, since he's at Camp David this weekend, I'm going to go see him at Camp David. Do you think you'd get very close down those roads to get to Camp David to be received by the president? No, you wouldn't be received by the president. That's the highest man with the highest office in this world, and he won't receive you. I don't even think the mayor of Greenville would receive you today. He might, but then he's just the mayor of Greenville. But I want to talk to you about the living God and the Lord Almighty. I will receive you. Are any of you in your souls seeking God? Are you desiring God? Do you want to be closer to him? Do you want to have a closer fellowship with him? Do you want to sit down and commune with him? And know him and be his friend and have him be your friend? Do you want those things? He says, I will receive you. I love this. It's not saying that we receive him. He, I will receive you. We should be seeking him. And he'll receive us. And he will receive us. But I hope that you already see in the context, it's if we will separate ourselves 
from the unbelief, idolatry, sin, filth, and corruption of this world, religious and national, if we'll separate ourselves from it. I will receive you. And then in verse 18 it says, I will be a father unto you. I will be a father unto you. Now think of the perfect father. Does he care about you? Will he protect you? Does he want the best for you? Are there tender feelings there? I will be a father unto you. But you don't know what a real father is like because he's the real father. He's the great father. Do you know what he says about all of us? If ye then being evil. Do you know what he thinks of all of us as fathers? Evil fathers in comparison to him. I will be a father. This is not a term or a title for God. This text right here is not telling us how we pray our Father which art in heaven. This is describing how God relates to His people. I will be a Father. I will humble myself down from being the Lord God Almighty. I still am that. But I will treat you like a Father. I'll protect you. I'll carry you. I'll feed you. I'll guide you. I'll... Everything that a Father would do. I will be a Father. And ye shall be my sons and daughters. I will lift you up and adopt you, and you'll be my sons and daughters. Sons and daughters, a concept not very well known outside of Christianity. The sons and daughters of God. And this text is not giving us a lesson in the phases of salvation. This text is telling us about the relationship between the living God and his people. I will lift you up and exalt you and care for you and love you and show you to the universe that you're my sons and daughters. Sayeth the Lord Almighty. What do we do with a passage like this? What do we do with it? Let's read 7-1 again. Having therefore... These promises, all seven of them, having in our possession, in writing, in writing, having, therefore, these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If the Lord wants us to be separate and to come out from among them and not to touch the unclean thing and not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, then let's do it. Because look what He's promised if we'll do it. Seven glorious promises. The riches of the universe. This is so much better than getting to heaven and finding yourself in a mansion that has 70 houses and 70 houses with 70 beds. And 70 beds with, sev- with perpetual virgins on them. That is no heaven at all. That would be a hell. Compared to having God being your God. Right. And being your father. And you being his sons and daughters. This is, this is the riches of the universe. There is nothing that could be given greater than this. Nothing at all, not in the mind of God or man. God giving himself to his people. 
What, what thing would you ever want? A couch with shade over it? That's what an Arab thinks. Because they've lived in the desert all their lives. They can't wait to get to heaven because there's going to be some shade. I'm telling you from the Quran. They can't get, wait to get to heaven to lay on their couches where there's shade finally. Bless their hearts. And I speak as a fool. Amen. I want to get to heaven to be with God. But brethren, I'm not talking about heaven this morning. Unless you want to call it heaven on earth. I'm talking about right now. Do you know what we just sang before I came into this pulpit for you this morning? Beulah land. I'm dwelling in Beulah land. I'm, what does it say? I'm feasting on the manna from your bountiful supply. Because I'm dwelling in Beulah land, the married land. God has married us. He's ours. The living God, the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Amen. Let us again redouble our efforts to wash ourselves and cleanse ourselves and get rid of those things that defile us before the Lord and that do not please Him, perfecting holiness in the fear of God so that He will be our God, that He will receive us, and that we can have that walk with Him that we want to have with Him. Amen. And that he will dwell with us and walk with us. What more could we want in the way of positive encouragement? Those seven promises, what more could you want? A bigger house? Please don't tell me that anyone is thinking something so stupid. What if you were reduced to a tent, but God was dwelling with you and walking with you and being your father and receiving you and you were his son or daughter? What are you thinking about this morning? A better job? A more intelligent husband? A prettier wife? Lord, help us if our mind would even run toward anything like that. Right. What, I'm, what I'm asking is, could he have given you any more positive encouragement than those seven promises? <laughs> Having, therefore, these promises, these promises, seven specific promises about God giving himself to his people. What more could we want in the way of negative reinforcement? Do you want some negative reinforcement? He's got it at the bottom end of this verse. In the fear of God. There is a God in heaven. It's a common expression of mine. Because whenever you're doing anything, you ought to remember there's a God in heaven. And that God in heaven ought to cause us fear so that we walk tenderly and delicately through this life, doing only those things that please Him. That's negative reinforcement. Because Ecclesiastes 12 didn't end with verse 13. It ended with verse 14. And it said there, for God. The one that we're to fear from verse 13, it says, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And that's all embodied in, in the fear of God. So we've got positive encouragement. We've got the foundation of the fear of the Lord. I don't really consider it negative reinforcement. We ought to love fearing a God like the one we have. It's not negative. I'm just using that expression to show the distinction between promise and threat. 
Paul could say in one place, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But how is he persuading us right here? Knowing the seven promises of God. Right. Having, therefore, these promises. Dearly beloved. So what are we going to do about it? Let's not make a political application of this passage to think about our nation, uniting with other nations, defending the religions of other nations. Let us not take this passage and make some denominational application by comparing Baptists to Catholics. Let's not take this passage and make any other application but to ourselves and ourselves personally. Let's consider our own dangerous associations and relationships and connections. Our church cannot compromise doctrine, and it is not going to God helping me. We will continue to practice closed communion because that is what the New Testament teaches. We are not going to open that up to others. And we're going to abstain from communing with others when we're visiting with them. Right, brethren? We would never do that, would we? Believers cannot marry unbelievers. It is a sin against the holy God. There is no reason to date an unbeliever. Because dating has only one purpose. To find someone to marry. You do not date unbelievers. If you date at all. You're looking for a believer. Because it is a sin to marry an unbeliever. And I mean an unbeliever in as tight of a restriction as I've drawn it this morning. Believing a doctrine different than what we believe. As soon as you break that down and say there are fundamentals that can be held and the rest are non-essentials, there is, you have no compass nor map to keep you from running all the way to polytheistic child sacrifice. Because you don't have a Bible verse to stand on. Once you break it down. If God said it, the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ are enough for us and we're going to stand with them. Do not date unbelievers. Forget them. Cut them off. Lose their phone number. Don't see them. Avoid them. Avoid where they traffic. Get away from them. Set your heart on finding someone that believes God. That you can live a life like this and realize the seven blessings of God and promises of God together in a marriage. How can two walk together except they be agreed? Everyone's agreeable when you're dating because both parties are liars. They're trying, each is trying to seduce each other. If you haven't figured that out yet, you're too young. And if you're 70 and you haven't figured it out, you're still too young. Dating is lying. The whole purpose of dating is seduction. Pretending you are something that you are not. Do not let that deceive you. Look for someone that fears the Lord and loves His Word and wants to abide by every part of it and loves verses like 2 Corinthians 7.1 that wants to live a holy life. Excluded brethren, and we've excluded some, are belly worshipers. That's what the Bible calls them twice. They're belly worshipers. And we are to mark them and avoid them. We are not to communicate with them. We are not to have anything to do with them except for necessary relationships, not relationships of choice, not communication of choice. They're belly worshipers, and we must cut them off as the Bible tells us to cut them off in the way the Bible tells us. We cannot be members of organizations that are based on secrecy, 
paganism or heresy. Right. A Christian cannot be a member of the Shriners. The Shriners are nothing but little people in America pretending that they're Muslims when they aren't. Right. What do you think the Hejaz Temple is? What do you think it's referring to? Some word from your Bible that you just haven't read yet? Or is Hejaz the province of Arabia in which lies the city of Mecca where Muhammad was born? Yeah, now you're getting closer to the truth. Why do you think the Shriner symbol is that curved scimitar, the crescent moon sword? Why is their other symbol a crescent moon with a star in it? Where do you think they got that from? Reading the book of Genesis? The Masonic Lodge and all of its secret ceremonies is a sin for Christians to be anything for to have anything to do with organizations like that. We should all be established in that. Are we as established in the fact that believers cannot marry unbelievers, so they shouldn't even be looking at them or dating them? We cannot join social organizations where our truth and our holiness are going to be tempted to be compromised. Our friends must be chosen carefully. And our friends should be saints that love the Lord, that crave holiness. Amen. A qualification for a man in the ministry is that he's a lover of good men. Right. Which is an example for all of us to follow. Even though it's given to a minister, it's what should be true of all of us. A lover of good men. Not a lover of hunters. Not a lover of fishers. Not a lover of sailors. Not a lover of military men. A lover of good men. Good as measured by God. Let's further apply this passage to cleanse ourselves from anything that is polluting us before God. Right. And I've been preaching this for a year and a half, but I'm coming back to it Amen. because I'm afraid for what's happening to our nation will cause us to speak out or to have passionate feelings. And if they're not based on a holy life, they're going to be viewed as hypocrisy by God and he's going to judge us. We've been given too much. Right. How about cleansing your spirit toward perfecting holiness by aggressively avoiding your television? Your television is an evangelistic tool for the devil. I do not care if you don't see it. You are missing it. There is religion being taught and preached aggressively on every channel. You must be exceedingly cautious and aggressively opposed to the television for the most part. Even those programs that you think are innocent, history channels, even those programs are presenting history in a view of unbelief. There is no mention of God. Discovery channel. Things are discovered by the ingenuity of man rather than the providential mercy of God. Everything is preaching a religion of not depending upon God. When you watch the news, you never hear a word about God. You never hear a word about repentance. You never hear evil called sin. I mean, you never hear a crime called sin. You never hear it called sin. Even the news must be guarded against. It will break down your love of truth. Amen. Can you watch the news? Watch the news with a jaundiced eye recognizing it's evil if you must watch the news. I'm not extreme. I'm just warning you that that is an evangelistic tool. The power 
of that media, of audio and video together, of pretty people, of prepared scripts, of video clips is a powerful tool. I'm talking news. I'm talking news. They will never address sin. They will never address God. They will never address confession. They never suggest prayer. They have nothing to do with holiness. They are infidels. Amen. They do not want you to know the truth. If you think those networks get together every afternoon and pray and ask the Lord to help them convey the truth to the American people, you are very misguided. They don't get together and talk about truth at all. They get together and say, how can we get our rating points up one more point? How can we cover this particular thing that's happened in the country? How can we lead the people astray? Their goal is not truth. Television. I know I've preached against it, but I know that it is in your homes, and I know that it is evil, and that I know your flesh loves it. Reading material, things I mention whenever I deal with holiness. What are you reading? What words are you bringing into your heart? The Bible says, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Be not deceived. If anyone says television isn't that bad, you are deceived. You are so ignorant that you are lying to yourself. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. If you watch enough wholesome movies, I'm using words of focus on the family. If you watch wholesome movies that do not give recognition to God, you are corrupting your manners. Because everything we do is to be done to the glory of God. And just because you're watching something where there is no nudity and no and God's name is not being taken in vain, you haven't accomplished anything yet. If you are watching life being lived without a dependence upon God, you are watching a lifestyle that is contrary to the Word of God. Yeah. You watch it long enough, you'll have a life that is based on that. You will condition your children that that is a good program, that is a good movie, we can watch that, they'll think that's ordinary, proper, scriptural, godly behavior. Not trusting. A Christian can live that way. Christians live their lives dependent upon God, seeking God, trusting God, confessing their sins to God. You'll guard your thoughts, my brethren, by avoiding temptations and choosing holy ones to replace all the evil ones that you cleanse out. Remember, cleanse ourselves from. So we got to get rid of thoughts. Confess them to the Lord, repudiate them, stay away from whatever causes you to think about them, and replace them with holy thoughts about the glory and goodness of God and the fact that He's your Father and that you want to walk with Him and dwell with Him as He is with you. Guard your speech. The verses of for this week are two verses that we all ought to memorize. Let your speech be all the way with grace, seasoned with salt, so that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Amen. We ought to learn that verse. Let that fill your mind. And let us guard our speech all week so that we're gracious in the way that we speak to each other. Rule your spirit to say, I'm in a bad mood. That's nothing to... When you say that, I'm in a bad mood, you're saying, I am a lazy, weak sinner. Moods are not caused by anything but your choice to be a fool. Oh, there are temptations to be in a mood, just like there are temptations to commit murder. But to be in a bad mood is a choice 
to let those temptations take over your character and your conduct. I'm in a bad mood today. No, you're just a fool, and you've chosen to be a fool. Repent of it and be in a good mood. Amen. Is it that easy? Absolutely, it's that easy. It's ruling your spirit. It's just that we don't do it very often, and we ought to do it. And we would do it if we were cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. So rule your spirit. How do you treat your spouse? Are you treating your spouse in a way that God wants you to treat them? Or are you treating them in the way that you've always treated them? God doesn't care about history. God wants you to treat them the way the Bible dictates. It doesn't matter how they're treating you. How are you treating them? Are you being a father who's a living example of godliness and trains his children to be the same? He just doesn't come home and gives out the paycheck and put cereal on the table. He trains them, reading the Bible, praying with them, putting everything in their lives into a context of what does the Bible say. That's a godly father. It's not working so hard at the job to get ahead that you don't come home and take the time to convey the treasures of God's truth to your children. Are you being a mother that's more like Mary than Martha? Are you a mother that your children will grow up and remember their mother praying and thinking spiritual things and speaking of spiritual things and loving Jesus Christ rather than being cumbered down with all the cares of this life like Martha was? That's cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. I'm getting right down to our practical lives, but that's what we've got to do if we're going to perfect holiness in the fear of God. After I tell you, I and you are responsible for doing this, and if we don't, we're hypocrites before God, and He is not going to receive us. We may be saved as so as by fire, but He's not going to receive us and treat us like a father. He's going to, a loving father. He's going to have to treat us with chastening. You be the best employee. You will get rid of everything that you do, showing up late to work, wasting time at work with personal phone calls, taking advantage of not working at breakneck speed all day long. Oh, you pace yourself, huh? Yeah, I pace myself so that I'll have energy when I get home to do something around the house. You're a sinner. You give your master all that you can, pleasing him well in all things. Don't Not answering again. Not purloining. Purloining. Not stealing in all those little insignificant ways that employees have learned how to steal from their master. Serve your master. Be the best employee so that God can look upon you because we're serving our master which is in heaven, even the Lord Christ. Be the best student. If you're in school, whether it's at home school or in school, have the right attitude and effort towards your teachers. And do your work well. How about being a citizen? Are you keeping all the laws? If you're not keeping laws that no one else knows about, it doesn't matter because God knows about it. Let's keep all the laws. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake because he's the Lord Almighty and he will receive us and dwell with us if we'll keep his commandments. You will remember that bitterness, bitterness, which exists to some degree in most marriages. Bitterness, envy, revenge are sins. And you will cleanse yourself from all of those things. 
whether it's towards your spouse, toward a neighbor, toward an enemy. What are you supposed to do towards your enemies? What does the Bible say? Pray for them. Bless them. Not revenge. You will remember that gentleness is godly. And that lacking gentleness is uncleanness. And you should cleanse yourself from it. To be gentle is to be godly because it's a fruit of the Spirit. You'll remember that joy is a commandment of God. And if you're not joyful, for Christian reasons, for godly reasons, you are sinning and you need to cleanse yourself from such a negative, perverse outlook on life. Because God has blessed us abundantly. Thanksgiving is a duty. And if you're not thankful, if you're a complainer, if anybody ever hears you complaining about the size of your house, about the amount of income you have, about your car problems, about your health problems, you are an ungrateful wretch. Rejoice in the Lord. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I want us to please this Lord. We must be thankful. There isn't a place for complaining. God hates murmuring. Go back and read the book of the five books of Moses and see what he did to Israel when they would complain and murmur about the things that he had given them. Well, they got tired of manna. Well, wouldn't you get tired if you had to eat the same thing every day? And so they complained about manna. And God judged them because he expects us to be thankful. You'll remember that the greatest duty is love. And you will seek out the unlovely and love them. You will not just hide in yourself and sneak in here and sneak out without loving others. You'll love. That's cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit if we'll love one another. You'll remember that all sexual thoughts and activities are seen by a holy God. You'll remember that anything short of Christ's character is a stain and a blot that we ought to get rid of. Brothers and sisters, can we go through life before our children, our spouses, our neighbors, and one another, living like Jesus Christ? Did he live in perfect holiness? Was he always gentle? He seasoned it with salt once in a while, but not toward one another in here. Did he guard his thoughts? Mm -hmm. Did he have temptations otherwise? Tempted in all points like as we are, but without sin. We have the most glorious promises of great riches, spiritual riches, if we will cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. He will single us out as a church, and he will single you out as a saint if you will separate yourself from the sin and pollution of this life and this world that's around us. If you compromise and play with it, you are going to live if you are a child of God, which there will be no evidence that you are. But if you are, and you compromise with this world and allow stains and spots in your life, he will leave your soul dry and unhappy, and you will never know the riches of communion and fellowship with the great God, the Lord Almighty, the living God. If Islamic fanatics can commit suicide for a pretend moon god and a profane dead prophet, why can't we live? For the living God, the Lord Almighty, who's promised to come and dwell with us and give himself to us as our eternal treasure. It says of the Thessalonians that they turned from their idols 
to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son Jesus from heaven. May the Lord bless us to live clean lives, perfecting holiness in the light of his glorious promises and to wait for his son Jesus from heaven. Amen. Please stand with me. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Bless the preaching of your word. Cause these verses to remain in the hearts of your people. Convict them by the power of the Holy Ghost. And bring forth fruit to your own honor and glory. And the praise of Jesus Christ our Lord who is the living God and the Lord Almighty. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.